Hi, it's Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. And I love to work with CEOs and teams on the tough stuff, the people stuff in leadership. It's also the joyful stuff. One of the CEOs I've had the absolute pleasure and privilege to work with is Martin Fisk. And I first met Marty on LinkedIn. I was scoping around to see who would be interesting to meet in Canberra, and I stumbled upon him and his profile. He's CEO of MensLink, which is a cause I completely support and advocate for. It's about supporting young boys to be pro-social young men. And I believe in this cause, and I'm proud to be a supporter and advocate for MensLink and their work. So A, had a good cause that he worked for, and B, he was into hiking and the high country. I thought, I need to meet this guy. (laughs) So we met up and had a tea, And from then on, have hit it off like a house on fire. I've been privileged to be Marty's coach for the last couple of years and have done some work with his team. Very proud of the work that Men's Link does and the incredible positive impact they've had in young men throughout Canberra. So I was delighted to invite him onto the show and very happy he agreed to it. And what unfolds is a wonderful conversation about his long history of leadership. So... Marty has had an extensive career, a 25-year career in both private and public sectors, including 10 years, nearly 10 years of running his own business. So he's been with Men's Link since 2011, so quite a long time. And he's expanded the reach and impact of Men's Link considerably with his team of counselors and educators. Also, in his spare time, he is vice president of the ACT Council of Social Services, a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and he serves on the ACT Governments of Gambling and Racing Commission's Advisory Committee. So stay tuned for this amazing conversation about insights around leadership, around culture, around imposter syndrome, about defining success and how to sharpen the saw and keep things fresh and alive for you as a leader. Okay, let's do it. Marty, so good to talk to you about your leadership journey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. (laughs) We're doing this live and in person, which is a milestone. I think you're the first guest we've had to the office since we had the lockdown. So it's an extra special pleasure to do this in person. And we are 1.5 meters apart, just for those listening at home. (laughs) They have a very good microphone, can pick us both up. First question, it's the big one. Marty, you've been in multiple different organizations in both the government and in corporate and now in the not-for-profit or for-purpose sector. How do you define leadership after such a wealth of experience? Um, To be honest, Zoe, after 30-odd years um, in, uh, in the workforce, I don't have a straight answer. But if I had an answer it would be something along the lines of being able to inspire other people to achieve an outcome greater than themselves that is aligned with you know what you need to do whether you know you're an army general trying to to do something there or or a government official or a politician or a community leader or an educator it's inspiring people to achieve something that's greater than themselves aligned with what you need them to do. Is that a more recent realization or is that something that you've evolved to? I mean, earlier in your career, is that what you thought leadership was, do you think? Um, I think earlier in my career, I was very achievement focused. 
and it was all about achieving, you know, um, quarterly numbers or a new product release or something innovative or growth or whatever. I think as I get older and more experienced, I now think that leadership is probably more about culture than anything else. Because if you have a culture that, that let's say in, in Men's Link's case, is a supportive culture, is a let's do what we can to help the community, let's do as much as possible to, to increase the volume and the professionalism and all of that sort of stuff that we do, it's that culture that drives people more than let's get in and do it. And so I think I have changed over time. I'm still as achievement-driven as ever I was, but I pay much more attention to, um, say, for example, in hiring decisions. How's this person going to be a cultural fit? Rather than, you know, how fast can they work? Are they able to, you know, tick all the boxes in terms of achievement? Was there a moment in time, do you think, that that switch came on where you thought it's not just about achievement, it's also about culture? Was there a pivotal time or was it a, a unfolding? I think it was more unfolding. But really then also reflecting, and I have to say, and a plug for Zoe Ralph here, a lot of your influence as well in being able to look at, okay, where we have achieved stuff. What were the driving factors for that? What was it about that? And I think one of the things I've been able to do in the last uh, four weeks with the coronavirus lockdown is have a lot more time for reflection. Yeah. And to really think, do you know what? It's actually, I've always thought that passion and desire and curiosity beat technical skills. I've always thought that and still do. But I've added as in an organisation this thing around culture. And if I look at, uh, you know, any legacy that I'll leave on this planet, it'll, it'll be culture with the people that, that I've worked with. Oh, that's lovely. And thanks for the shout out. I can get you 100 bucks later. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you first realise you could do leadership, whether it's an achievement style leadership or... Uh, an expanded view which included culture when did you first realize hey I can probably do this gig Zoe if I was to be really honest with you I would say I still don't really I really suffer from like a lot of people that imposter syndrome so I look at myself as you know I'm just doing the best I can but I have had people in the past actually say that I could do this leadership stuff, despite me vehemently disagreeing with them. And I think if I look at what is a technical skill around, you know, having just disparaged technical skills for the last five minutes, uh, a technical skill around leadership, it's the ability to articulate something intangible or something complex in a simple way that people get. And maybe that's a technical skill I've got, just in being able to articulate some of the intangible things into words and in a way that people go, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, that is definitely a skill. 
and whether you have a natural ability to it or whether you were you honed it is absolutely a gift and leaders need to be able to take complex ideas and and big concepts i mean where you work at men's link it's about mental health and dealing with young kids who are at risk those are complex issues you know and trying to sell what we do is help them navigate that is a complex story and the ability to boil it down to a story that people engage with is is really crucial and again i think it's um uh to use another one of your terms the amplification so i had an email sent to me by one of my staff members this morning and he said marty it's a bit embarrassing and it came totally out of the blue but i thought you'd like this and it was an email that a young man had sent him just this morning and it said something on the lines of hi our counselor's name is richard wonderful chap hi richard i came i don't know if you remember me but i came to see you in 2015 and i'd like to come back and see you uh because there's a few things i want to discuss by the way Thank you so much for helping me and, importantly, helping me become a man. And I'm like, wow. Now, I went back to Richard and said, you know, this is a real example of the lasting difference that so often we don't know we're having Mm. and that you have achieved. Well done. Would you mind if I told people about it? And he said, yeah, sure, as long as you cut out the client's name. And I think that's also part of leadership is really amplifying in a way that people can understand the real difference that they make and then fostering that culture. Mm. You know, the sort of things that are noticed in our organisation are the helping of people and making a difference. And... You're right. The storytelling about that and the recognition of singling out people and celebrating those stories is part of embedding culture and encouraging it. And not everybody does that. We get, we get so busy just getting through the task list. Sometimes it's like, hang on, <laughs> we're helping make a difference here on the planet with the people around us. And that's good to pause and reflect on and to just appreciate. Yeah. And I, I think us as leaders have a real responsibility, whether you're in the community sector or, or you know, more importantly, perhaps in, in government or politics or, or particularly in the commercial world, what is it that we celebrate? Because the things that we celebrate start to define the culture and the culture defines the behaviour. So if we celebrate sales and profit margins above all else, we start encouraging our staff to make decisions that might not be in the best interests of our shareholders, of the community in general. Mm. I look at some of the things that um, happened uh, six months and and earlier in um, politicians' offices. And the senior politicians would always say, but I had no knowledge of that. And they didn't but they created a culture in their office which said it was okay to maybe bend rules Mm. to achieve a political gain. And I think as leaders, we have a responsibility to our communities, to our society, 
to not only be able to inspire people, but to make sure we inspire them in the, in the right way. There's what a, legacy is it that we want to leave? I think that's an important big picture reflection. What legacy do we want to leave? And I think there's two points that you said in there I think are worth reflecting on, is that what we celebrate is what is the culture that we create. And the other piece that is implied in what you said uh, reminds me of a saying one of my mentors says, it's how you do one thing is how you do everything. Yes, I've always remembered it when you passed that on to me. It's powerful, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's like the politician sitting in their office thinking, but I didn't know about it. It's like, well, they're all bending the rules. Where have you been bending the rules or rule? Is there, is there a little thing that you bent that has sort of set the tone? Yeah, it's really easy to change a culture for the worse. And I think as leaders, we need to be very careful on that um, because you could have and I've seen it in in my own experience a high performance culture which is actually really toxic yeah, right. or you can have a supportive culture that is also high performance mm. which one do you want yeah no one wants a toxic culture have you ever made that mistake where you did something that caused the culture to cascade in a negative way um, I think certainly, and I continue to make this mistake, you know, I, I, uh, you know, life is a, a constant learning journey, but I think sometimes when I've looked at decisions where the end justifies the means, I think the more experienced I get, the less I believe in that statement where you cut corners or you, you stop debates or, you know, I don't care about you, we just need to make this happen. Mm. Those can be really negative things around culture. Now, I'm not saying in, in, in some instances these things don't happen. All of us will remember the, the times of, uh, if you were down on the south coast, the times of uh, December and January this year around Australia, the times when the coronavirus uh, really came through. And we all had to make life-changing decisions for our organisations, often on a Sunday night after the Prime Minister gave out mm. <laughs> a press announcement. Mm. Um, you know, I, I would be on the phone at 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening making massive decisions mm. about opening or closing the office or cutting services or not cutting services. They were really difficult, but I think, if anything, in terms of that culture, allowing people to have their say, hearing them, understanding pain, even if you've got to make a decision that might increase the pain for, for a staff member or a community. How do you go about holding that, I guess? So every leader who has to make a tough decision feels a sense of responsibility to and a responsibility for the people in their care, whether that's your clients or your staff. How do you process that emotionally? How do you go through that experience of making the tough decisions and then living with the consequences? By being more forgiving of other people. Oh, really? Tell me about that. That helps me become more forgiving of myself. I look now at, and particularly in this world, there are a whole, yeah, right at the minute, there are a whole lot of people making really fast decisions that have massive consequences with very little information. 
the more I think that they're doing the best they can, the more I start to realise, do you know what? Maybe that's all that is asked of any of us. And if I can allow the Prime Minister or the Chief Minister or the Chief Health Officer or the Education Directorate person or whoever it is, if I can really allow them in both my heart and my brain to make mistakes <laughs> according to the best of their ability, then that's probably okay for me too. I think that's a great observation. You can do it in your brain, but not your heart sometimes. And I think <laughs> doing actually to rationally get it, that maybe they're doing the best they can, but to actually feel it, which is feeling compassion, that's what that is, then you're right. That gives you a chance to be more forgiving of self which as somebody who's achievement-driven and high performer would be a difficult lesson or a difficult practice, I'm guessing. Absolutely, yes, it is uh, challenging. And I, and I remember, Zoe, in the, and it took you a, probably a good couple of years to get me across this uh, because every time you would ask me in our early work together, you'd say, so Marty, how do you know you're successful? And I'd rattle off numbers and results and, and all of these things. And you'd, you'd keep coming back, yeah, they're all external. They're all external. And then after a couple of years, I finally got that realisation that it was really around just being true to yourself. And I think that's important. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't leaders out there who at various times are probably not true to themselves. What do you mean by that, by being true to yourself? And what do you mean by there's some out there who aren't? So I think there are some people who are in positions of leadership who will make decisions based on their own self-interests. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And not in the interests of the position to which they've been appointed. So in which case they are being true to themselves, but they're being true to their selfish self. Yes, yes. <laughs> As opposed to their higher self, which is more in service to others. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, I spent really over the last probably 10 or 12 years working every year on understanding and then reconfirming what my core values are. And, you know, for those of you uh, interested, they are being kind to others, improving whatever I can and exploring. So compassion, exploration and improvement are the, the three values. And after much prompting from Zoe, I finally worked out that, you know what, if I can be true to those three things every day, then that's, that's successful. If I can help others be true to their values, then that's being more successful. And that's it. That's really, that's really lovely. I get, I'm getting a little emotional <laughs> thinking about that. Hey, I'm still good with a spreadsheet. You know, don't get me, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I, I spent a lot of time yesterday before our board meeting and after our board meeting going through numbers and COVID-19 payments and tax office, JobKeeper statements and all of that stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day, your values may drive your behaviour, which will drive culture, which will drive the behaviour of the people around you. And generate the results, yeah. And then generate the results. So I think that this is a really important distinction to make. Like when we're at achiever stage of our leadership maturity, it is a lot about 
external results. And when we move to becoming amplifiers or later stage of leadership maturity, it's not throwing that out. No. It's taking that with us. And it's not a question of either or, but and. So it's achievement and the, how we go about doing it. It's achievement and our culture, it's achievement and values. It's, it's more, of a, more of a complex picture than just the spreadsheet. So it's not, you don't ever throw the spreadsheet out, otherwise you don't have a job or a business to run. And I think that's a really nice observation that you don't just, you know, I'm walking away from achievement that's wrong <laughs> to carry it with you and do it differently. Yeah, and I think you said uh, a really important word there, Zoe, and it's the word and. Mm. So there's a, a spiritual writer called Richard Raw, who... Richard Raw, like R-A-W? R-O-H-R. He's a Franciscan monk. R-O-H-R. R-O-H-R. Okay, yeah. And in one of his books, he, he talks at length about the difference between saying yes, but... Mm. And yes, and. Mm. In the first one, I'm sort of acknowledging what you said, but mm. I'm going to go on to my own thing mm. and prove you wrong. And the other one is saying, yes, you're right. And there's an addition to that. Mm. And I think I, I just picked up that in what you said about, you know, that use of the word and. You're actually adding something. You don't throw it, you know achievers but you need to do this mm. it's yeah you still got to achieve and mm. do the amplification and and one thing i try and do as much as i can is little acts of amplification and do them all the time wow there's two things i want to pick up there so the the and piece is about moving from binaries this or that me or you right versus wrong to more inclusive complex view of people things tasks the world and the second part is what you just said after that which has gone out of my brain (laughs) (laughs) so we were talking about that and where did you finish it was around little pieces of amplification yes what does that actually mean to you so in the example this morning of that really nice email yeah and i haven't done it yet but i'll probably do it sometime this evening i'll just send that around to the board and the staff yeah, that's nice. You know what? It'll take me six seconds and I've then got 20 or 30 people mm. involved. What are the little things we can do? It was uh, somebody's birthday today. One of our suppliers. Mm. I just picked up the phone, rang him. Didn't sing, but just wished him happy birthday. <laughs> I send texts to people at random times, just... How are you going? Yeah. And it's fascinating. There was a study around suicide and there was a study both in America and in Australia. It was written in Thomas Joyner's book called Lonely at the Top about male suicide. And these two hospitals sent a letter six weeks after a mental health patient who had tried to um, kill themselves sent them a letter saying, how are you going? Do you need anything more? Do you know what? Rate of suicide, nosedived amongst those people. Wow. Just by sending them a, how are you going? And I think that's really important. Even if the person ignores it, do you know what? Somebody kind of cares. There's somebody out there in the world that kind of cares. I think that's a wonderful message. And it's. I've been having a conversation with... 
a number of leaders who are struggling with different aspects of of the COVID-19, the pandemic experience. And some of them have retreated even further into their shell. They're shy people and they find it challenging to go out to networking functions. And this has given them an excuse to a certain degree to retreat. Yeah, me too. So introverts, yay, delighted. (laughs) And then the conversations they were having with me were, I'm losing the ability or the desire or the confidence to reach out to people and to, to... make a sales call or even just to say hello and I think your message about it, it's a little little act of amplification just to sing out and say how are you going and the the story they tell themselves is uh they've got stuff on you know they have other people they're looking after and or I feel so miserable myself I don't want to spread my misery on others and um I mean you work in the mental health sector what is what are your responses to when people get to that stage when they're when they're starting to close in a little bit and retreat into their shell and don't want to bother people and they kind of go into this negative spiral? Sometimes you've got to force them. One of the things I learned early in business is that successful people force themselves to do stuff they don't want to do. <laughs> and there was a study that went through, you know, all of the the sort of successful companies in in my generation. So the Hewlett-Packards and the Apples and the IBMs and, uh, you know, I can tell I was an IT geek at the time. but And they said, do you know what? It's not intelligence. It's not inheriting money. The thing that is the same with all of these successful entrepreneurs is that they do stuff they don't want to do. Now, I think we have a thing in our society that is potentially at the root of a lot of our mental health issues because we have a society driven by advertising in the media that says you should really only do what you want to do. And life isn't like that. I remember just last year, a young guy that I had mentored many years ago And he had a significant personal fall. So much so that that he was in bed, you know, for a week. Didn't get out of bed, didn't get out of his room, had kind of moved back to his parents' house. And his dad rang me and said, Marty, you know, can you help? I said, yeah, sure. I'll come round. And he said he's in bed. And I went, yeah, that's okay. Just tell him I'll be there at, you know, two o'clock or whenever it was. And I came round and his dad had just got him out and he's, you know, in his kind of, you know, boxer shorts and stuff like that into the living room. I said, okay, mate, let's go for a walk. Yeah, both him and his dad, like, yeah, well, you can't do this, you know, like I'm having a mental health episode, you know, I, I need to you know, relax. No, 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 bugger it. We're going for a walk. I'm not sitting here talking to you. We are going walking. Get your shoes on and we'll go. And we walked for, I think, two and a half hours. He turned around after it and went, that was the best thing ever. And he's never looked back. Now, it's not to say he's not going to have another stumble, right? I'm not saying that. But it was the act of forcing him to do something Mm. that kind of helped. And I think, you know, I'm like this. I'm getting all sorts of reasons why I shouldn't reach out to people, you know, because 
um, while I, I act like an extrovert, I'm actually an introvert. And I'm coming up with all these excuses and I've got to force myself. But I can force myself in little ways. I'm just curious, what kinds of excuses are you are running through your mind to keep you from making phone calls or reaching out to people? Oh, uh, they're all so busy or I'm really busy or I've got other stuff I need to do or they don't want to hear from me. Yep. If your mind <laughs> wants to, your mind can develop thousands of really good excuses. I mean, you know, protection of ego is one of the most creative exercises your mind can ever do. Uh, and if you can sit back and watch yourself do it, it's kind of funny. So protection of ego. So what do you think your, your ego is really afraid of when you make those calls? Like, is it fear of rejection? Yeah, always. Yeah, right. Always. What if I say something dumb? Really? You know, I didn't want to do this podcast. You know, I'm terrified. You know, that's, I'm going to be really dumb and, and nobody... Well, A, nobody's going to be listening to it, so that'll be good. But then, <laughs> oh my God, what if nobody's listening to it? That'd be really bad. <laughs> There are people listening to it and you're not dumb. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah. It, that's one thing that really surprises me. You know, I've been doing this series interviewing leaders, well-established leaders, very experienced leaders in very difficult contexts and way more so than any of the experts, so-called leadership experts that I've interviewed. The people who are actually doing leadership, and I've done it for years, 30 years, you say, are the ones who feel the most unworthy or not up to it and it just you know from leaders of multinationals uh to people with 50 years experience all have shown i'm going is that was that okay <laughs> is, is this okay and uh i just find it amazing and at the same time you know what that's good it's good because one of the things that i've researched in my new book people stuff about what can help us stay out of some of the shadows the shadow archetypes of leadership, which are not helpful and keep us in the positive ones, is demonstrating humility, curiosity, and care. Humility, curiosity, and care. So the fact that you're like, ah, oh, hum humble to say, I don't know if I have anything good to say is really good. And then the curiosity piece, which is maybe it'll be okay. And the care piece is, well, your message is important. And that's, I think, for you, one of the things that drives you to pick up the phone. It's like you get over yourself and think, no, this people will actually need to be looked after and would value a call. And I think, I'm guessing that that's what spurs you to get over your inner narrative and to get going. Is that true? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, maybe I can help somebody. Um, and even if it's just leaving a message. I was reflecting on, on what you were saying about curiosity. It's, it's A, a key tenant to positive mental fitness is to be curious. Really? But it's also something I think that does assist successful leaders or managers. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I gave a speech once to um, uh, graduates at university and I said, you know, one of the challenges in your world is you think, wow, I've just done the most intense four years of my degree possible, that's it. I said, well, unfortunately, you're only at the beginning of your learning journey. And one of the things that I learned decades ago from a former boss, he said, spend an hour a day learning. Hmm. And I've done that ever since. Every day, I will read for an hour. Really? Now, it might be, at the moment, I'm reading a book on overcoming anxiety and adversity. 
At other times, I might read the classics because the classics really give you insight into people's behaviour. Um, and people's behaviour hasn't really changed that much uh, in a couple of hundred years. Uh, you know, you can, you can still get insights from, you know, Evelyn Moore or, um, or Jane Austen or, or something like that. Even or I might read business books. Mm. Poor Zoe's writing down all these authors. I know, Yvonne, <laughs> Yvonne what? War. How do you spell that? W-A-U-G-H. Yeah, you know how my brain translated that? My Canadian brain? W-A-R. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yvonne War. Yeah. War. War. Can't quite get it. Um, so out of the recent classics that you've read, what's one that's sticking with you? Uh, actually, uh, Viktor Frankl who wrote about his experiences in Auschwitz. Yeah, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. You know what, That's been, it's been mentioned a couple of times in recent interviews, Man's Search for Meaning, and it is a very powerful story, and it is, because it's so harrowing, you know, surviving a Nazi uh, war camp, and coming through that with a positive attitude is just something that none of us want to ever experience. Mm. And it's uh, powerful lessons, you know. And I, I love the comparison to what we're going through now because having to stay at home in your own comfortable house, depending on who you're living with and your circumstances at home, is nothing compared to going through uh, what he went through and what others went through. But I think also the, the takeout that I got from his book is often... I'm really hoping none of us will go through the experiences he went through. But almost all of us are going to go through a life experience which is completely and utterly unfair, Mm. which for the time will make us feel completely and utterly hopeless. And when we sit in that environment... What Viktor Frankl said was the one thing they can't take away from you is how you react and what you feel inside. Mm. And I've never forgotten that. Mm. Because we all have situations, you know, wherever it is in life where we feel the world's ganged up against us and, and, you know, life is incredibly unfair Mm. all the time. Mm. But the one thing they can't take away is how we react. And I think that's so important, never more so than when we're leaders. You know, when when the economy's against us or or difficult staff member or a complaining client or the electorate or a class or whatever it is. But they can't take away how we react. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely one of the things that we actually have absolute control over, even though our subconscious does a pretty good job of steering us in different ways. As of you course. said, you know, the ego protection thing can take over. So what are you doing right now that's giving you a sense of upliftment? I mean, you mentioned a couple of things. One was reaching out to people and seeing how they're going. It's one way to feel uplifted by uplifting others. What's the one strategy you think is by far and away, helping you see positivity and feel positive about what's next? Mm, I'm a Gemini, so I never restrict myself to just one (laughs) thing. There's always at least two. In general, I've now got a little bit more time than I had before. And I'm I'm doing just two simple things that I'm going to continue 
well beyond the coronavirus crisis and they're making a big difference. One is I'm moving to walking meetings. Yeah, that's so cool. So actually catching up and connecting with people. Today, I've got four of them. (laughs) Hey, I'm getting fitter as well, but they're just a wonderful connection opportunity. And the people that I'm walking with are loving it. One person that realistically I would see once every few months has said, can we do this every week? Oh, wow. And you're really developing a a much better connection. So that's one. The second one is with the increased time. I'm spending realistically not much more than 10 minutes every day just meditating. And And it's fantastic. Is this a new practice for you, the meditation? I would meditate often, but it was very irregular. Okay. Now it's every day. And I think people get this view of meditation that it's all fluffy and, and you know, you, you've got to sit in yoga poses and, you know, images of the Dalai Lama and all of that sort of stuff. But actually meditation is just about focus. So I don't meditate in a quiet room. I meditate in the kitchen with the dog barking at every single person who walks it past our backyard. <laughs> we don't have any fence or anything like that and we're on a walking track. And for me, meditation is all about focus. And if I can bring focus onto my meditation and ignore the dog and and people making breakfast around me and radios and all sorts of other distractions, then that's just helping me in my daily life because I'm able to practice that focus on stuff that matters. Now in meditation, the focus is on stillness. The focus is on my breathing. The focus is on, on... yeah, I don't really think it's nothingness, but it's, it's singularity. And that's then going right through my working day and my personal day as well. So they're the two things I'm, I'm learning and I'm never going to give them up. Oh, that's cool. That's really good. With your walking music, this is a technical question. Is there one circuit that you do or do you find little circuits? Do you go to people where they are or do you have them come meet to a regular walking circuit that you know that takes... 45 minutes or something. So that so this morning I had one at Lake Tuggeranong, then I had one at Bowen Park, then I had okay. one around the sort of bridge to bridge circuit. And when I leave here, I'm going to go and walk around Lake Chinandera. Okay. Other times it's up Mount Majura, that's tomorrow. Oh no, Mount Taylor tomorrow. Um, that's it's a bit tough for a walk. Fitter people. <laughs> <laughs> it just depends on, on the people. But there's, there's walks you can do with anybody of all sorts of fitness levels or desires, speeds or whatever. Um, Pick up a coffee on the way. And um, I was talking to somebody this morning and I said, do you know what? We're now doing fortnightly walking meetings. I said, we've achieved more in the last four or five walking meetings than we have in the last couple of years in terms of creative ideas for both of our organisations and working together. So, Awesome. What's one message you'd like to leave with listeners, do you think? I think as leaders, really trying to make sure that we balance our desire for action while acknowledging all of the feelings, not just of ourselves, but of all the people 
that may or may not be affected by that action. And, and I think for me as a, as a leader looking in the, the next phase of, of my career moving forward, as I said, we're always on a learning journey. It'll be trying to balance that action, not versus feeling, but action and feeling. Because I sometimes think we can box ourselves into that action world. You know, I'm going to get through the spreadsheets. I'm going to make my numbers. I'm going to do all of this stuff. Or we have to do this or we have to do that. And balancing that with the feeling. You have too much feeling, you don't get anything done. Not enough feeling and you're just running roughshod and um, you're not building that sustainable culture. And it's just finding that balance. Mm, I love it. So yet another polarity, another and to include into the recipe of leadership. Marty, you've been delightful as always. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation. It's always wonderful to discover new things about somebody that you thought you knew a lot about. And with Marty, he always is such a deep thinker and a deeply caring person. And I think it really came through in this conversation. The key takeaways for me were little pieces of amplification for culture. I like that. I like that as a, as a premise. What can I do today to help amplify the positivity in the culture? How can I do something to uplift somebody else in the culture? I think that was wonderful. And the other really important one was how to make tough decisions easier, as in surviving them after you've made them. And that's to be more forgiving, more forgiving of self, because we're all doing the best we can with what we've got. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please share. Press the forward button on your device and share this with somebody who needs a little bit of a boost and insight. Marty's conversation will definitely do the trick. In the meantime, live well, lead well.